Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Christian Freeland's mask theater, Justin Trudeau's fake quarantine hotel, and the Liberals' shutdown debate to ram through Bill C-10. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Oh, I, I didn't know we were on. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, hi. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. I, I'm so sorry you, you caught me off guard. I, I was all masked and, and ready to go. I always wear a mask. You're never going to catch me without one. It's I, I just, you know, don't worry about that. Wait, I'm starting to sound like Christian Freeland, aren't I? Oh, yes. Forgive this little bit of fun at Christia Freeland's expense. A couple of times now, she's been caught just putting on a mask at that exact moment when it is politically convenient for the sake of optics to do it. The first was this little video clip of a press conference. All right, welcome to today's press conference. Bienvenue à la conférence de presse d'aujourd'hui. We will now hear from the Deputy Prime Minister. Okay, thank you very much. Oh, what do you know? Put it on at the last second just to take it right off in a performative act of mask virtue signaling. And then a couple of days later, she's posing for this big group photo outside the G7 finance minister's meeting. And oh, what do you know? She's the only one masked. Everyone else is unmasked. But then you look at some of the other pictures that weren't used <laughs> that were circulating on Twitter and you see moments before the picture is taken, she is scrambling to put on her mask just to make it look like she's always wearing it. Well, if that isn't just performative theatrical nonsense, I don't know what is. Now, at first, I find it ridiculous to pretend to be wearing it only to take it off, to make it look like you were wearing it the whole time. It's absolutely absurd. But even then, at this point in the pandemic, when you are in England, a country in which most people are fully vaccinated, you yourself have been partially vaccinated, to be the only world leader and dignitary wearing a mask outside, well socially distanced, is kind of a decent reflection of where Canada is right now. She's not fully vaccinated. She is, like most Canadians, still forced to wear a mask when she goes out. And she will have to, if she follows the rules, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, hotel quarantine when she gets back and then do a 14-day quarantine. So the Canadian inferiority as far as the COVID situation compared to elsewhere in the world was on full display when Christian Freeland posed for that picture. And you see her in other photos from the G7 and other footage when she's meeting with her counterparts and her colleagues. They're all living life as normal. She is the lone mask wearer in a lot of situations. And this theatrical display with the mask is really not fooling anyone. And it actually makes me a little bit frustrated because it means that Canadian lawmakers are really hell-bent on creating this idea of a new normal that is very far removed from the old normal that we all been hoping our government would let us go back to. And even use the word let there sends a bit of a chill down my liberty-loving spine. 
And I know these are silly things to poke fun at here, and I've had a couple of people say, well, is this really the biggest thing going on? Is this the biggest thing to criticize the liberals for? And it's not that it's the biggest thing. The point is that the little things tend to matter when they're part of a bigger pattern. And in this case, that pattern is the liberal government gaslighting Canadians into thinking that this is a normal way to live and a normal way to behave. Christian Freeland is not the only person over in the UK right now. Justin Trudeau will be joining later this week. Mark Garneau was there a couple of weeks ago. This is one of the biggest multilateral events to take place in person this year. And the first, in fact, that Canada has participated in in quite a while, as I understand it. And the government has been extolling the virtues of in-person multilateral diplomacy. And by the way, I agree with it. Certain things you cannot replicate on a Zoom screen, especially in a diplomatic context. But the problem is that Canadians like you and like me are still being told any travel we want to do isn't all that important. We shouldn't be leaving the country, but they can. And politicians are, by the way, exempt from quarantine. They're exempt from hotel quarantine, but Justin Trudeau is choosing to do a hotel quarantine just to prove the point that this is the way we should all be doing things. Except there's a problem. One of the restrictions the federal government put in place was to ensure that international flights could only enter the country through four airports. And it was hotels around those four airports, Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, and Vancouver, that had to be converted to these government-approved accommodations. Well, there aren't any in Ottawa, which is where Justin Trudeau's plane is going to be flying into. So just to prove that Trudeau is willing to play by the rules, they're taking over an Ottawa hotel and turning it into a government quarantine facility that Justin Trudeau and his handlers and other staff and even some media will have to stay at. But it's theatrical. It's fake. It's not a real quarantine hotel. It's just being done to appease the peasants which is so central to the government's insistence that this is all how a normal functioning society is supposed to work. I want to talk about this with Michelle Rempel-Garner, who says that the hotel quarantine in Ottawa is not enough. She joins me on the line now. Michelle, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Likewise, thanks for having me. So your motion, which you put before the House of Commons, was to force Justin Trudeau and his delegation to quarantine at one of his designated hotel quarantine sites that every other Canadian's been subjected to, rather than this uh, special Ottawa hotel arrangement that's being set up. When push comes to shove, why does it matter if he's going through the motions and quarantining in a hotel upon return? Oh, let me count the ways, Andrew. Um, first of all, there are tens of thousands of Canadians who are separated from loved ones uh, by border restrictions, and uh, they can't afford the quarantine hotel system, number one. Number two, uh, there have been reports of sexual assaults at these hotels. There have been reports of COVID-19 outbreaks, and the government's own panel of scientists had sa has said that this program should be scrapped. So, uh, you know, the elitism of, well, I'm not going to stay at the regular hotel. I need to shut down an Ottawa area hotel to do this is it's ridiculous. It's theater at the taxpayer expense. And I just think it's probably one of the most bourgeois things that he's done. I had the department officials at health committee today. I encourage you to have a look at that. I uh, asked the uh, a couple of the deputy minister level folks, well, you know, what's different about the prime minister's security 
as opposed to a woman who's allegedly been sexually assaulted at a quarantine hotel. And their response was just so removed from reality and actually disgusting. Um, the, The prime minister should not be traveling if he's not going to stay at a quarantine hotel like everybody else, or he should scrap the program, which he should have done a long time ago. Yeah, this is the the government that famously said back in 2015 when first elected that it was going to be evidence-driven, unlike those conservatives. We're going to listen to the evidence and listen to the science. And and time and time again, when the so-called science doesn't align with their policy objectives, uh, there's always a reason for why they aren't following it. And this report that came out a little while ago is a great example of this. The government's given no concession that the report might be valid, even though they were the ones that put it together. They've just been downplaying it. And, and talking about all the reasons why, well, you know, we'll, we'll take it into consideration. It's just an interim report. When it says the hotel quarantine simply doesn't do anything. Yeah, great points and a few things to build on from that. First of all, I've heard rumors from a few well-placed sources that the government was actually in possession of that report for a long period of time, that they actually renewed the hotel quarantine program while being in possession of that report and sitting on it. Um, you know, I, I think that's something that needs to be looked into uh, based on what you just said. The government isn't making science based decisions. And just furthering that, I have asked department officials numerous times to publish data that shows that this this quarantine hotel system is better at preventing the spread of COVID than any number of other options, including at home quarantine. They can never provide that. Bluntly put, Trudeau failed to close the border when it counted uh, in early 2020. And the hotel quarantine program was just put in place, I believe, to discourage middle class Canadians from traveling uh, to make it cost ineffective because it's sure not stopping NHL players and rich people from getting special exemptions. It's sure not stopping Justin Trudeau from traveling abroad. And that that entitlement, that um, elitism, that stratification of social class under the guise of public health orders is disgusting. And I hope that Canadians of all political stripe hold him to account for it. You are right about the elitism, not just in in hotel quarantine, but in general with a a lot of the travel restrictions, because we've seen that people who have money can get around it. You know, they can fly with a private jet into an airport that's not one of those main four. They can pay for the hotel quarantine if they need to. They can uh, do these bizarre arrangements like driving to a border and taking a helicopter over that we heard of happening in Ontario and Quebec. And, And politicians in the same boat, they're telling Canadians that their travel is not essential no matter why they want to do it or how important it is. But when they're doing something abroad, whether it's a G7 summit or or something else, it's essential. And there is a double standard there. And and admittedly, I'm not one who's saying don't travel. I'm saying that if they're telling people not to travel, they should be playing by the same rules. How is um, an NHL player traveling into Canada more essential than I, you know, I had a constituent in tears call me about how his cross-border relationship is, in very difficult times, uh, has has family members that are sick. How is how is that travel more essential? Like it's just complete. You know, I, I was going to use an expletive. It, it it's just so bad. I the, the program needs to end. And at this point in time, the federal government should be putting forward benchmarks for safe reopening and lifting of federal restrictions as it pertains to the border. They can do that while at the same time doing something that they've also completely failed on which is putting in place a system to detect 
pathogens that are like might have a significant impact on Canada, like COVID variants of concern. Why did the, the COVID, um, the Delta variant, that's what they're calling it, I believe, in India, was detected in October. And then they only banned flights from there, what, about a month ago? What is, like, how, how does that happen? So I, it's just nonsensical. Um, I, I also actually condemn the, you know, some of the, the senior level officials that are giving the government the advice on this. They're so disconnected from reality. But it, the buck stops with these ministers uh, and the prime minister who are, living by one different set of rules for themselves than than everybody else and i hope that people realize that that this is this is a this is an entitled elitist system from an out of touch government and from a prime minister who thinks it's more important to go to you know to travel abroad when no one else can rather than fix the system first he should have done that he's making people pay tax dollars so that he can stay in a bougie hotel in ottawa for optics if, if he's so committed to the hotel quarantine system, maybe he should stay in one of those rooms that don't have a lock that other women have had to be subjected to. If his security is so important, maybe he could just fix the system for everybody. Very well said. Conservative health critic Michelle Rempel-Garner. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. I want to turn from the political side of this to the legal side of this. Last week, I was tied up for three days. I say tied up. I enjoy doing it. And I wasn't nearly as tied up as the people that were actually participating in the Zoom call. But in a federal court Zoom hearing, as the constitutionality of the hotel quarantine was being challenged, there were a number of applicants, most of them represented by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. But our friends at Rebel and Key and Bexty were also putting their claims forward, arguing that this federal hotel quarantine program is not constitutional and also basically that it doesn't work. The effectiveness or lack thereof became very central to the hearing as well. I want to bring in Saya Hassan, who is a lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and was one of the two primary litigators on this case for the JCCF. Saya, thanks for coming on. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is we, we've seen an injunction on this question before. This is really the first time that in a full hearing on the merits, uh, we've had the constitutionality of this attested, isn't it? That's correct. Yes, we, the Justice Center brought a constant, an injunction hearing where we were not successful, but the judge found that there were serious issues to be tried when it came to Section 7 and 9 of the Charter, and then we were able to have the full uh, hearing on the merits of our Charter arguments. The premise of this program, I know I've talked about it on the show in the past, is that in January, the government of Canada said, we've got all these variants coming in, our travel measures that we have in place now aren't working, so we're going to force anyone who comes into the country by air to stay in a hotel near the airport for three days to get a test, and then at the end of that three days, they can continue on home and complete their quarantine. What's really the basis of your arguments, and what is it that your applicants are actually fighting for? Uh, we brought quite a, we were challenging quite a few of the charter sections, but really the main area is the detention. So under Section 7, we have the right to liberty and security of person, and under Section 9, we have the right not to be arbitrarily detained. And really the focus was on the fact that people that are forced into these government-mandated hotels, they're being detained against their will. They are not going there voluntarily. And of course, we raised the issue that once you're detained, you're entitled to speak to counsel, which is also a right that is being violated that, uh, during these quarantine hotel um, when this is going forward. So those, are, those were some of the issues that we raised. 
I was tuned in for the majority of the hearing, and at one point, the federal government's lawyer was saying that, well, it's not arbitrary because everyone is getting it to, any, everyone's subjected to it, and you have people that are coming into the country that know this is going to happen. Is the government admitting that this is detention when they make that argument, when they just focus on the arbitrary part? Uh, no, I don't think they were admitting any part of the detention. In fact, they argued that it was a frivolous argument. Uh, but the argument, there's two parts to detention. So first, you have to actually either be physically or psychologically detained. And they argued that once you're at the airport and you're being mandated to go to these quarantine hotels and or the quarantine facilities, you are detained. And then the second part is that it has to be arbitrary. And the arbitrary argument, there's quite a few arguments to it, but one of them is the fact that there's only a small number of people actually who are being subject to the quarantine hotels. 75% of the international travelers who come to Canada are completely exempt from the quarantine hotel. So their focus is only on 25% of the international travelers. That in itself, we argued, was arbitrary. The fact that the land travelers are being treated differently than the air travelers, those types of things make the detention arbitrary. At one point, when you talk about how few people of overall travelers are subjected to this, one thought that comes to mind is that a lot of people are simply not traveling because they don't want to be subjected to this. And it seems as though the government has put in place a lot of these measures, not because the measures themselves work, but because they're trying to make travel so uh, convoluted and so costly for people that they don't do it. They're trying to discourage travel, it looks like. And if that is, in fact, the case, that that's not a selling point on a constitutional defense for the government to make, because as I understand it, any limitation of constitutional freedoms has to be very pointed and very directly tied to the policy objective, which if it is just a part of discouraging it, it really isn't tied. Well, the government is arguing that the reason for these measures is to limit the importation of the variants, but I, but you're absolutely on point and one of the other arguments we made was the section 6-1 argument which is your charter right to enter Canada freely and be able to leave freely and when you put in place when the government put in uh, puts in place measures that prevent people from traveling or makes it difficult for them to come back that violates their charter rights under section 6-1 because these uh, the measures are very restrictive and they don't they violate a lot of people to enter it just makes it a lot more difficult and they argue that that was also against the section 6-1 of the charter anyone who's ever followed any of these constitutional arguments in canada in any case knows that we of course have section one of the charter which subjects all of the subsequent charter rights to so-called reasonable limits and in a lot of contexts this means i would fear that if the government can say the program's working a court could find that the limitation of freedoms would be limited is that where you feel this case is headed where the court may concede yes rights are being violated but the limitation is justified because of X, Y, Z, when you're talking about the variance or importation risk and so on. Well, we're hoping the court will not find that, that they will find that these limits are not justified under Section 1, uh, but that, that's probably where things are going to turn. And uh, we were before the Chief Justice uh, Crampton, and he was actually very concerned about the evidence, and he was asking the Crown, you know, where's the evidence for this and where's the evidence for that? So he was very alive to the issue, and... I, I take comfort in the fact that he was asking questions and he wanted to know where the evidence was. Uh, so I, I thought that was a good sign. 
Yeah, and one point that I, I found very interesting, and the government lawyers did not really seem to have an answer for it, was... And just for people that haven't come into the country under this, you might not know this, but you go to the hotel quarantine, you get a COVID test. At the end of your three days, if your test is positive, more often than not, you still continue home exactly as you would have if your test came back negative, and you still go into 14-day quarantine exactly as if your test was negative. And and in, in doing so, the government has really made it so there's not a, a substantive difference, which makes me question, and I would hope makes anyone question, okay, well, what What's the point of this all? And the judge had asked, I, I know, at a couple of points for more information about that, and the government didn't really seem to have the data on how many people have actually not been permitted to go right home, even with a positive test result. And, and you know, at one point, it seemed like the, the lawyer for the government of Canada had said, well, you know, if you know you're positive, your mindset will be different when you're in quarantine, which again, doesn't seem like the most uh, selling argument for them. Uh, definitely, and that was—I uh, mean, we, I think we argued a lot of a lot of points. But one of them was yes, the government is arguing that if you know that you're positive, then you will have a different mindset. Well, the argument was where is the evidence for this? It certainly wasn't in any of the affidavits. It just—it was something that one of the affiants stated in her cross examinations, and so that was something that we challenged. Uh, and certainly, it doesn't appear that they are collecting data with respect to how many people who test positive get to go home versus who is being directed to the, uh, the quarantine facilities. Now, I know that this was, again, a, a three-day-long hearing. There were thousands and thousands of pages of evidence. It's entirely possible that the program could end if the government ends the program before a decision comes from the court. But if that happens, is it still important in your eyes that this be found unconstitutional? Absolutely. I think it's very important because this is the first time in post-charter history where the government is, uh, is forcing people into quarantine, essentially detaining people en masse. And if this is found to be constitutional, I think it's going to be it's going to set a very dangerous precedent because moving forward, the government can continue to do so. Versus if the courts put a stop to it now, they will not be able to use that later on in other, emer in other emergency contexts. Yeah, and this is, I think, a very important point, Saya, because we know that, yes, this is a once-in-a-lifetime problem that we're dealing with now, we, we certainly hope, as far as COVID, but the very nature of the circumstances under which governments wish to suspend liberties, which is situations of emergency, are the circumstances in which it's most important to preserve and protect liberties. I mean, the right to enter the country without detention is, for the most part, not a right that is challenged on a day-to-day -day basis under normal circumstances. So this idea that an emergency is a trump card that you can use to suspend the charter it is simply not accurate and very dangerous of a presumption by the government, I'd say. Absolutely. And, and that's what we told uh, the Chief Justice, that it's exactly during these times, the emergencies, when charter rights are being violated. So it's very important for the courts to be vigilant and to be the gatekeepers and ensure that the government isn't uh, violating our charts with, uh, uh, arbitrarily. So I, I know predictions are very difficult. To, you, you put your best foot forward, you make the arguments, you submit the evidence, the Chief Justice has to rule. What do you think this case will really come down to in the court's decision? What do you think will be, I guess, the, the factor that sways the decision one way or the other? It's, it's really hard to tell, and, and I really can't predict. But what I can say is that the Chief Justice was listening. It was very clear that he had read everyone's material. He had marked things up. 
he was asking a lot of intelligent questions and he, he did tell all of us that he was going to review all of the affidavits and the evidence in detail and that they had given him a lot to think about. So I think that's all. That's what we can ask when we're having a hearing to have a judge who listens and who takes uh, notes and who asks questions. And I think that's always a positive sign. Saya Hassan, lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. A very big week last week uh, with three days in federal court arguing for the end of the hotel quarantine plan. So I hope you were able to get some some much needed and much deserved rest afterwards. But I appreciate you joining me today, Saya. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was a very important case. And it's funny, I had, after I was live tweeting a lot of it, I had someone respond and say, is the judge going to come out with a decision today? This was on Thursday after the, the case had wrapped up. And I said, I certainly hope not, because if the judge is coming out with a decision after, you know, three days of nonstop arguments and thousands of pages of testimony, uh, that means he hasn't really thought things through all that much. So if he just comes back and says, no, 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 it's no big deal. I don't quite want that to happen. But it is going to take a while. And like I said to Saya, it is entirely possible that the decision will come back after the hotel quarantine plan is already dead. And I hope so. I would love to see the government kill this program imminently without needing a court to tell them it's unconstitutional. But the caveat there is that it is still important to put on the record that lack of constitutionality. Because we see this with the pandemic. Every single measure that governments have imposed because of court backlog, because of all the fines that are being challenged, the laws that are being challenged, all of this, there have not been many opportunities to actually have these full constitutional hearings in court. So the idea that the government just has all of these measures they're doing that are untested, and when the next emergency rolls around, they do them all again, and no one's challenging them because they are moot, as they say, because, oh, well, the pandemic over, it's not a big deal. We need to make sure that we put in place the jurisprudence to prevent governments from seizing these rights and freedoms without opposition the next time something comes around that makes it tempting for them to do that. So my thanks to Saya Hassan and also to the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms for putting this forward. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. We have talked extensively about Bill C-10. This is the Liberal government's bill that will expand vastly the regulatory purview of the government, of the CRTC, to include online content, everything from Netflix and whatever the other Netflix alternatives are, Disney+, Plus, to what you post on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and any of these other myriad platforms, which, as much as I try, I can't necessarily keep up with. The major problem with this is that the government has been behaving to pass Bill C-10 in a way that demonstrates exactly why government cannot be trusted to regulate the internet and what you post on it. For starters, we've had Stephen Gilbo, the Heritage Minister, call anyone who is criticizing this bill a conspiracy theorist and an extremist and accuse the conservatives of fake news. And then you have the unwillingness of the government to entertain debate 
debate on this. We're talking about a very sizable bill, a very significant bill, and a very complex bill, and the Liberals want to ram it through before the summer, even at the cost of debating the bill more extensively. This is exactly what happened in the House of Commons this week. The Liberals, backed by the Bloc Québécois, passed what can be best characterized as a gag order on Parliament, cutting short debate on Bill C-10 so that they they can just get on with it and get the bill passed before the House of Commons recesses for the summer in just a couple of weeks' time. Now, this is something that the Liberals are no doubt couching as just, oh, it's a procedural matter here and there, but they are trying to stifle and shut down debate. They know that the longer Bill C-10 is debated, the more Canadians will see exactly why it is that the Liberals shouldn't be trusted to regulate the internet. So here's my point. Why should Canadians be expected to endorse government regulation of the internet and internet content when that same government doesn't even want a debate on the bill? What else are they going to shut down? This is the, and again, as I'm not saying Stephen Gilbo is personally going to be sitting over the big control panel saying, well, you know, that Andrew Lawton guy, I don't like that tweet, so maybe we'll, we'll zap that tweet of his. But the problem is the government has a tendency to redefine things in ways that are only suitable to them. So when it comes down to deciding who gets an exemption for being a media organization and who doesn't, I do believe the government is going to make a judgment call that is going to exclude independent media outlets like True North. When social media companies have to develop their own policies on what can be posted, I know that those policies are going to be heavily shaped by a liberal government whose approach is not generally conducive to free speech. And so many of the intricacies of this, the Liberals have said, well, that, that's all going to be in the regulations. That's just going to come from the CRTC. We've just got to pass the bill. Remember when Nancy Pelosi had made that comment about, I think it was a budget or a stimulus. She said, you have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. Well, that's Stephen Gilbo's approach to Bill C-10. You've got to pass the bill to find out what the regulations are going to be. So this is why conservatives, and to be fair, the NDP as well, why conservatives and the NDP are so insistent on debating this and on discussing this, because the liberals are leaving a lot off the books. They're leaving a lot out of the text of the bill, and that is going to be, as that saying goes, the devil that lives in the details. So how dare you claim on one hand that you stand up for free speech and that anyone who says you don't stand up for free speech is a lying extremist conspiracy theorist on one hand, while on the other hand, literally shutting down the debate around that very bill that you say is not going to be an affront to free speech. You can't make this stuff up. And if you could, the Liberals would call it fake news anyway. But here's the problem. The Liberals are now going to get this passed. There is a hope that people have to hold out on, that the Senate will uh, either drag its heels on it, as senators are wont to do, or perhaps that the Liberals will not actually get it through the Senate. Perhaps even senators might have some issues with it, being the sober-minded second thinkers that they often tell us are so critical in the parliamentary process. But regardless, the Liberals are more interested in ramming this through than they are in putting together a bill that makes sense and achieves what they say are their policy objectives, which, again, they're couching it in all great terms. Oh, we just want to protect Canadian content and make the big players pay like the Netflixes and the Facebooks. But it isn't those folks who are the most disproportionately targeted. It's every Canadian that has been led to believe the internet is as close to an open platform and an open forum as one can find. 
And the liberals are threatening that not by big tech companies, but by their own hand and forcing big tech companies to be the enforcers of it. And that they are shutting down debate on this once again proves why they are in no position to be calling the shots on what can be posted online, which is precisely the regulatory regime they are setting up. And just be, before I take a break, I have to just draw attention to this story. So I don't know if you've been following it, but in Nigeria, they are having a bit of a back and forth with Twitter, where uh, Twitter banned the Nigerian president from Twitter, and then Nigeria just banned Twitter from Nigeria. And this has, again, been a, a conflict that has revealed Twitter's inconsistency because they stand up and start talking about the importance of free speech and open dialogue and all of that, even though they're the ones sitting at the censorship switch. And then this happened. The Canadian government's diplomatic mission to Nigeria, alongside those of the European Union, Ireland, Norway, the UK, and the US, conveyed their, quote, disappointment, unquote, with Nigeria's announcement suspending Twitter and proposing registration requirements for other social media. We strongly support the fundamental human right of free expression and access to information as a pillar of democracy as around the world, and these rights apply online as well as offline. Banning systems of expression is not the answer. So just, just go back. We convey our disappointment over proposing registration requirements for other social media. They are literally pushing forward a bill that does exactly that. And they had the audacity, the Canadian government, to join this statement, to join this statement saying that they condemn a government effort in Nigeria to regulate social media platforms. I have to assume Canada didn't write this, that the EU, Norway, UK, US did it, and they sent it to Canada not knowing about Bill C-10. And Canada's just like, Okay, let's just uh, let's just sign this and send it back and hope they don't don't look too much. They, they've literally signed a letter condemning exactly what they are doing. So uh, perhaps Canada and Nigeria can uh, team up to do the retaliatory statement to Twitter on this. In any case, we've got to take a quick break. We will come back to close things out in just a couple of moments here on the Andrew Lawton Show. Stay with me. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I want to close things out today on a somewhat more reflective note. I spoke in the previous episode of this program about John A. McDonald and the cancel culture mob's attempts to erase him from history or rebrand him as a villain rather than a hero of Canada. And we talked about this in the context of John A. McDonald being defended by Alberta Premier Jason Kenney at a time when there are very few people willing to stick their neck out and defend John A. McDonald, which is in and of itself a dangerous product of our time. And I'm insistent when I've talked about this with people on the point that average ordinary people either don't care about this or certainly don't agree with the cancel mob. The number of people, if you were to poll average citizens who have a negative view of John A. McDonald is probably quite minimal, but those holding this minority view tend to dominate a majority in academia and in media and increasingly it looks like in the political class. Well, yesterday, another statue came down, that of Egerton Ryerson outside Ryerson University. There was a time when this would have been a lead story on this show, that a statue of a historic figure came down. It's not anymore, and when I saw the tweets of this statue on the ground, my first response was, oh, what? I thought it was already down. 
And that was basically it. I know it had been defaced a few days earlier. I knew it had been the subject of ongoing protest and condemnation locally. In my view, it was only a matter of time before this statue was on the ground. A couple of hours later, it was decapitated, and I have no doubt that activists will move on to the next statue now. As I've said time and time again, this group is not interested in building anything. They are only interested in destroying, destroying physical reminders of a past era, and also destroying memories of a past era, and by extension, the lessons we are to take from these periods in history. It won't be long before Ryerson is facing a serious push to change the name of the school. This will continue. More statues will come down. More historic figures' names will be stripped from schools and parks and any edifices whatsoever. And people that say it doesn't matter People who say it's not a big deal and it's not worth fighting for will find eventually they have nothing left to defend. And that's the reason I want to tell people to pay attention. A lot of these things that seem fringe become increasingly mainstreamed. And I'll tell you a story about this. Back in 2010, I was involved in a national speaking tour uh, by Ann Coulter. And at the time, the campus mob mentality was starting to ramp up, as you may remember from that pivotal moment in Ottawa University when Anne was supposed to be speaking, and protesters had kind of taken over and made it so dangerous that Ann Coulter could not safely proceed with the talk, and it had to be cancelled. But two other talks went on without a hitch. The University of Western Ontario had one heckler for one moment who got up, said his piece, and sat down. And then the University of Calgary, where she spoke, and they had said, hey, it looks like there's a lot of interest in this. Do you want a bigger room? And that was free speech. People that didn't like it could boycott it. People that liked it could go there. And people who are curious could listen. That event would not happen in 2021, and there was a, a run for a couple of years before in-person events were prohibited, at which point, if a speech went on without being interrupted, that became newsworthy. But a speech being cancelled, a venue being shut down, a fire alarm being pulled, these stories were no longer news. And all of the people that said that wasn't the hill to die on, well, now it's statues. And if you don't stand up for statues and history and historic figures, it will move on to something else. And a lot of people in politics and media and academia who don't believe this, but are too afraid to speak up. You have to get over it and speak up because the mob that seeks to destroy, to shut down discourse, to tear things down are never going to stop at statues. They will just move on to the next thing. And it seems like fewer and fewer people are willing to give them any opposition. And I'm not talking about armed conflict. I'm not talking about violence. I'm talking about ideological opposition. When these statues get taken down and someone says, we have no intention of putting it back up, you are saying that they are right. You are saying that they did you a favor, that you hadn't gotten around to taking it down, and they've done the duty for you. They should build it. They should build it better. They should build it in a way that makes it a beacon on the hill because that is what Canada is, a product of its history. We've got to wrap things up. My thanks to all of you for coming on the show today. We'll talk to you soon. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news. <laughs>